Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Securities and Exchange Commission has received 18,000 tips from would-be whistleblowers in 2023. That's half again more than the year before. Since starting its whistleblower program back in 2011, the SEC has paid tipsters some $6.3 billion. My next guest says the program will only continue. He's a whistleblower attorney and partner at Human and Caputo, John Crutchlow. Mr. Crutchlow, good to have you with us. Uh, Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And the SEC does come up regularly as kind of a model for whistleblowers. I guess they established their program in the distant aftermath of the Madoff scandals, which the SEC somehow turned a blind eye to and really got religion, sounds like. Yeah, the uh, the whistleblower program uh, came out in about 2011 and has been a, really a tremendous success over the last uh, more than a decade at this point. The uh, nonprofit Better Markets recently uh, issued a report suggesting that whistleblower tips have resulted in over $6 billion in monetary sanctions against uh, folks who have violated the securities law. So it really has been a big boon to SEC enforcement efforts over that time. Should people go directly to the SEC? Should they get a lawyer first? I mean, what's the best what's the best practice here for the whistleblower? Every situation is certainly unique. First and foremost, if somebody would like to file anonymously, the law requires them to hire a lawyer to do that. But even if they don't want to file anonymously, there are a lot of advantages to working with a lawyer who's experienced not only with the securities laws, but also with the whistleblower program. First, the lawyer can help with assessing the strength of the whistleblower's evidence uh, in light of the applicable law and can help identify gaps in the evidence or blind spots that might exist and can provide advice, if possible, on how to fill those gaps. The lawyer can also provide, I think, pretty invaluable help in preparing a whistleblower submission to highlight the evidence and the issues most likely to be of interest to the SEC and in a way that will eventually hopefully be most helpful to an SEC investigation. Uh, It also can often be helpful to have a dialogue with somebody in the SEC's enforcement division before submitting a tip. And the lawyer can help with these things. If a lawyer who is external decides to go on with this and help the whistleblower, because there could be a good reward eventually from the SEC, does the lawyer, will a lawyer, will you, work on the basis of that future settlement or payout? Or does the whistleblower need to make that investment themselves? Most most lawyers who practice in this area, I find, uh, do work on a contingency basis. So so most lawyers who will represent whistleblowers in a case like this will not get paid unless, unless there is an award paid to the whistleblower at the end of the case. Which I would think would make you selective about which cases you take on. Certainly, yes. It, it doesn't help anybody to try to bring a case to the SEC that is not meritorious. Right. And And that takes even the good cases, though, takes some patience on everybody's part. It takes time to get these things settled, discovered and settled and decided. Yes, I think uh, any any lawyer who practices in this area is going to spend a lot of time up front working with the client to make sure that the case is one that actually has a good chance of being successful. We are speaking with whistleblower attorney John Crutchlow. He's a partner at Human and Caputo. When someone is protected in that manner, though, they're still out of work. Even though the SEC is going after the company, that's great. What happens to the person then? Well, again, I think if uh, the company would have to know that the person is an SEC whistleblower for that, uh, for them to be fired for that, uh, and the company would face pretty drastic consequences if they uh, identify the person as an SEC whistleblower and then fire the person. But uh, yeah, it can happen. And one of the big, obviously one of the most well-reported 
aspects of the whistleblower program are the financial incentives that come with it. Um, and that is to help compensate people for the risk that they take. And the, you know, the whistleblower program has paid out uh, a considerable number of awards uh, over the years, including some pretty substantial awards over the years. Uh, I think that the program has paid something like $2 billion to almost 400 whistleblowers over the last uh, decade plus. So there are pretty substantial financial awards. Some others have pointed out a couple of problems with the SEC program. What, in your opinion, should they still do to make it up to full greatness, if you will, for for whistleblowers? Yeah, the SEC whistleblower program has uh, undoubtedly been incredibly successful. Um, It has been a real boon to SEC enforcement efforts uh, over the years uh, without any question. I think if if there were room for improvement, I think there are definitely a couple areas where um, the program could be improved. One of them is the amount of time it takes between when a uh, the SEC resolves an action uh, that qualifies for a whistleblower award, between when a whistleblower applies for that award and the money is actually paid, can be uh, quite a long time, can be well over a year, can be sometimes be more than two years. So. I think the law could be strengthened if there were some pretty hard and fast deadlines in place for the SEC to uh, to pay awards uh, to qualified whistleblowers. In addition to that, I think the law could be improved to prevent retaliation or to give the SEC enforcement authority to bring an action for retaliation against somebody who is a whistleblower, has has raised appropriate issues internally and is retaliated against for that before they have become an S- a formal SEC whistleblower, before they've actually submitted a tip. So in order for the SEC to take enforcement action against a company for retaliating against a whistleblower, that person has to have already filed a tip with the SEC. Um, if they have not yet done so, the SEC doesn't have authority to go after uh, a company, for example, for uh, bringing retaliatory action. So um, I think the law could be strengthened by allowing the SEC to do so, even if a person is not yet a uh, formal SEC whistleblower. Yes, yeah, so that would be a statutory requirement to change that. The, the rules would have to change for sure. Yeah. The rules or the law? The, the law would have to change um, and the implementing regulations would have to change. And ultimately, the SEC took the position that it was entitled to, to take that action, but the Supreme Court uh, interpreted the existing law as saying that somebody would have to actually be an SEC whistleblower defined as somebody who has actually filed a tip with the SEC to, uh, in order to for the SEC to take enforcement action against a company for retaliation. Um, so that was uh, basically a, a uh, an interpretation that the Supreme Court made, which is the law of the land today and can be fixed by a, by a change to the law. And with respect to whistleblower practices across the government. Is the SEC a model for other agencies that could improve their programs, do you think? The SEC is is a fantastic model. Um, I think that it uh, has been very, very successful. There is certainly a culture inside the SEC that, well, I, I was an SEC attorney myself. Uh, I have now been practicing before the SEC um, as a whistleblower attorney. And uh, I can tell you that that the SEC culture is is pro whistleblower. I think that whistleblowers are respected. Their uh, their confidentiality is is protected when possible. Uh, the retaliation provisions are enforced when possible. 
so I think that culture is something to be applauded and is something that other agencies could adopt as well. And the uh, the process in place, you know, the um, very good, sophisticated SEC enforcement attorneys are reviewing every single whistleblower submission that comes in the door. Um, and not all of them are assigned for investigation. You know, with 18,000 tips coming in the door, it is uh, it is certainly not the case that uh, every single one that has good information gets assigned. But but you you can be assured that a good, sophisticated SEC enforcement attorney is going to put eyes on your submission. And that's good confidence to have. And I think a lot of other agencies could could benefit from from that model. And we should point out, too, that the SEC can only hear financial irregularities. If there's some EEO type of violation or something in some other area than finance, then you got to go somewhere else anyway. Yeah, this is uh, the SEC whistleblower program is for information about violations of the securities laws. Whistleblower attorney John Crutchlow is a partner at Human and Caputo. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.